So what the hell are we going to talk about? It's been a long time. Yeah. It has been a long time. It's been like two months at least, hasn't it? December. Right before Christmas. Yeah. Well, we've had a couple revelations, a couple protests. So I feel like we have things that we can talk about there. That'd be pretty easy. It's true. We had that New York Times article that we emailed about. Oh, yeah, the psychology guy. Oh, yeah. We kind of talked about that topic before it, though. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> Have we? Too much, really. There's just too much. I don't know. What are we actually, like, uh, what's on our minds? Like, if we weren't recording this, what would you, uh, like, what were you reading about this morning or something like that? I don't know. I was reading an editorial by David Brooks about the why Governor Walker's... I don't Walker's, like it already. Yeah. Governor Walker's plan is not so crazy. At the same time, it's just being badly implemented. So he has this argument saying that public unions are too strong, but they're not the cause of the deficit. Oh, David Brooks. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I was looking for uh, for something, because I thought we might be debating uh, some of this stuff, and I was like, who's going to take the side of... Walker is correct here. And you're going to take Governor Walker. <laughs> you thought it might as well be you. Is that what you're saying? No, I was just like just to know what you know somebody would say. So I looked up David Brooks, thinking he might have something yeah. interesting, and sure enough, he did. What do you? You know, I have to admit, on this particular issue, if not most issues, but on this particular issue for sure, um, I've been kind of uh, stuck within the left wing echo chamber so to speak uh in terms of like the reaction to it and what people are thinking um is this something that is actually causing the people of wisconsin to really despise this guy is he becoming wildly unpopular are the people against this or is it the case where you know the 30 percent of the vocal sort of left are obviously outraged and everyone else is like ah who cares unions suck anyway or something you know like what what's the i mean do we do we have a sense of that or are we the wrong people to be asking i guess I think we're the wrong people to be asking. <laughs> Somewhat. I well, I would say, I mean, they've shown, like, there's been several surveys that, I mean, a, a healthy majority, like 70-some percent of residents of Wisconsin favor keeping collective bargaining rights for public employees. So, I mean, I don't know if it's, like, tanking Walker's support overall, but, like, clearly a vast majority of Wisconsin residents are opposed to this particular action. The question, yeah, like how, what sort of connections people make. Like you can always do that. You can like look at, you know, like people did with the healthcare reform. Like, look, you know, 80% of Americans support this and 70% support that. But then at the end of the day, it was wildly unpopular. So like you got to wonder, do people make a connection between like what Walker's doing and the policies they support or don't support and then their opinions and attitudes toward the whole thing, which can be totally different, especially when you have the news, like I said, completely like missing the story a lot of the time telling you know telling this as a budget deficit story as opposed to a union's union rights story well you know this is just anecdotal but i was i was talking to a friend of mine who teaches uh high school here in california and you know both of us uh listen to conservative radio me more of a kind of gym workout background noise and him a little bit more seriously i would say but I, i've noticed that the spin of conservative radio is that people who belong in the private sector are always outraged that public sector employees have these really nice pensions and 
they have they get paid really highly and you know they make three or four times more than their private sector counterparts and it's because of the the unions and so this narrative um plays out you know constantly on am radio and my friend was kind of picking up on it and he was saying yeah you know i'm all sympathetic for these guys who are getting their pay cuts but at the same time you know i'm having to pay an extra two hundred dollars a month next year and and insurance premiums increasing because the unions here aren't that strong and you know my friend who works at a factory he's his his health care and you know fees are so much higher than what your public sector employee pays and it's just unfair and what that argument seems to obscure is that the public unions aren't really the ones who are increasing the extra health care costs um, because the way that the public ra- the AM radio spends it is that because the insurance companies need to lose money giving public sector employees like a low premium, um, those costs are offset by the private sector workers. Um, and they do it kind of like in this very convoluted argument. So it makes it sound that because the public sector unions are so strong, it's actually increasing uh, health care costs. And uh, when I kind of like explained it to my friend, like, so you actually think that these guys in Wisconsin, because they're collectively bargaining, they're actually increasing healthcare costs, you know, and uh, let's, let's think about how that could possibly be the case. And really, it's not a story (laughs) of like, that the public sector's unions have it so good. It's really that the private sector unions have it so bad. I mean, that's the real story. Um, but it's yeah, just a I mean, flip of the reality, you know? Yeah, I was going to say, that's what kind of blows my mind about this in general. That It seems like such a uniquely American thing that you look at somebody else who has it somewhat nice and the response isn't like, oh, man, I should get that too. It's like, how dare somebody else get that? Like, you know, like why is the response that we should tear them down? Rather than maybe you should look at your employer and say, like, hey, why do I not also have affordable health care? There's a weird thing about our country. For a country that is so ideologically um, divided on attitudes toward, gov- you know, the public sector generally, uh, I think people have a, and I'm including myself in this, have a uh, very fuzzy understanding of how public sector employees and the public and the government works in general, right? Like I have, I have a friend who has a bunch of uh, family and friends that are at least a few that work in Washington, D.C. and for and around the federal government. And it's a expensive part of the place, part of the world to live in, or part of the country to live in, well, part of the world too, part of the country to live in. Um, people make a lot of money there. And there's a lot of money in that town. And there's a lot of employees. And from that you get, you know, I mean, I think people sort of know that and that's where a lot of the, you know, the federal government so bloated kind of thing comes from. But then that's that's like totally different from like, uh, you know, uh, people that work at the DMV <laughs> in your local town or people who work for the, you know, post office or, yeah. you know, like normal public sector employees at, at universities, for example, you know, spread throughout the country. Like, I don't, I mean, I don't know. I'm guessing that in general that, you know, those public sector employees are not overpaid relative to their private sector counterparts. And in fact, I, I know in a lot of cases, that's not the case at all, right? Right. So well, there's, there's a huge disparity. <laughs> my, my point is there's a lot, the public sector's huge, 
yeah. there's a lot of disparity in how you're compensated and what your job is like depending on where you fit geographically and within the hierarchy of the government. So, and people don't don't really understand that, including myself. I I think um <laughs> yeah. I like that caveat in the end there. But Well, I, I don't. I, I, I'm no, kind I, of I'm kind of ignorant on these things. It's really complicated. The federal government is freaking huge. Yeah, no, that's I, not a bad thing necessarily, but no. it's complicated. I, I will say though, I mean, to speak on the side, not on the side of the Walker, but like I think that one thing that is different about public sector unions and private sector unions, and this comes from that David Brooks editorial that I was telling you about that I read earlier, he makes this distinction that, you know, um, one of the things that states are really having a hard time dealing with is these obligations to pay for um, um, retirement funds. And, you know, like L.A. County has like $100 billion that it, it needs to pay out in the next 10 years or something ridiculous. And... These pensions are, are are quite generous, and I'm not saying that they shouldn't be generous. But his distinction between public sector unions and private sector unions is that he says, you know, in a way, when unions mobilize or collectively bargain in the private sector, there's this acknowledgement that you don't want the company to go bankrupt. But usually states don't go bankrupt and the government doesn't go bankrupt. So there isn't a, a natural uh, tendency for unions not to ask for too much. Or there's this like idea that they might push for a lot, but they won't push for too much. And I guess like the case of like Southwest Airlines, you know, where the unions helped the corporation, you know, strategically organize itself so that it would be profitable. He says that's kind of missing in the public sector uh, bargaining situation. And moreover, you know, the people that they're bargaining with, um, they're not bargaining with CEOs. They're bargaining usually usually with um, elected officials. And if they are being hardball with the union, um, they can just do these kind of smear campaigns, which does happen, um, to get that person out of office. And so there's also just kind of a natural tendency for public officials to acquiesce easier um, than private sector CEOs who, you know, you can't vote them out of office. And so they're going to play hardball the whole time. And, and so he kind of depicts this picture that, you know, they, they, things are a little bit different between public and private sector. And in some ways, the public sector unions have been more successful. I mean, obviously, they're the really last haven so of wait, unions. The, the argument is that, um, uh, like, a, a corporate CEO has more leverage or less leverage? More leverage. I don't know about that. I mean, I, I, I think the, pol the politician thing, the elected official negotiating with a union goes both ways right i mean if you want if you want to i mean if you want to believe in the uh the sort of capitalist dream here the the private sector uh ceo or whoever's negotiating with the union is accountable to shareholders who don't want crazy union uh fights to drag on forever yeah, and yeah, ever but they care more about the profit margin than yeah. their employees getting paid politicians wage. yeah but politicians can just say screw you we'll blame the union for the, whatever political fallout there is and if politically this is a victory for me who cares how horrible it is for the government or for the state or for the people that you know are supposed to be getting paychecks and getting benefits from the yeah, state but until relatively recently like um politicians haven't cared too much about budgets i mean there's been just deficit spending so okay let's spend an extra 10 percent this year on increases on wages 
they don't they don't feel that on a bottom line because the bottom line doesn't really exist. You know, they're not worrying. Yeah, about but that it. that that same thing works in the other direction, is what I'm saying. How like so? the same the fact that they don't they don't care about budgets now either, but they care about the political advantages of talking about budgets. So, which is why I mean, they really don't care about budgets. Which means if they want to accommodate the unions, they can. So maybe they do have more flexibility with accommodating unions than a private sector, uh, you know. Uh, business would. But on the other hand, would it would the same logic also be that if they're a Republican anti-union governor and they think they're popular and they can win political points by standing up to the unions to, you know, in defense of the budget, they can they can do whatever the hell they want to. I mean, doesn't the political thing really corrupt it in a way that <laughs> I mean, I don't know, maybe maybe this is a tangent. And I'm I just want to. Sorry, I want to jump in on two things, too. I mean, one is the first one is that this is a very classic David Brooks assumption without any evidence that somehow public sector union employees don't care about budgets or are not conscious of it in the way private sector union employees are, which maybe his argument makes sense, but he, I am assuming provides absolutely no evidence for it as he never does. Um, but the other thing is specific to Wisconsin, as we were talking about, um, I read this really good article, which we'll throw up online. Um, by a Pulitzer Prize winning, nonetheless, tax reporter who was explaining that like one of the big problems with the debate about Wisconsin is they're saying like, you know, oh, we need to balance the budget. We don't want taxpayers providing these huge, you know, pensions for these employees. And he points out that the public workers' pensions are deferred salary, right? They're not like taxpayers are paying these down the line, like da da da. It's their salary that they're getting later. So it's, it's not, I mean, it's, it's totally, uh, it's just totally misleading. And I would argue intentionally misleading to act like it's some handout from the public when it's really just a deferred salary that they're getting down the line. So when, yeah, he, when he says stuff like, oh, we want the workers to contribute more to their pension. It's like the workers are contributing a hundred percent to their pension. Like it's not coming from somewhere else. There's nothing more they can contribute to that pension. That was uh, David K. Johnson, right? I think that's the guy's name. Yes, it was. Yes, I read that. That was exactly it. Very good. Uh, all right. But, I, but uh, I anyway, I mean, it's a really good point. Well, I was just, Go just going to say, I think, you know, the fact that public sector unions are so much stronger um, and have been able to survive the kind of backlash against unions in the 80s and 90s speaks probably to the comparative advantages that they do have. And I, I think he makes a valid point saying that, you know, political public unions can really leverage the politics of attacking teachers and attacking firefighters in a way that other industries can't and that's not necessarily a good or bad thing but that's just the the reality of it and so if you have a situation where nobody's really being attentive to what what these amounts of money really mean then you could have situations where spending gets kind of out of control on pensions and salaries because who's going to go against you know funding these things until very recently this has become a political issue and I think you know I'm not a Tea Party supporter or really a conservative person but I have to give them credit that they're the ones who have really brought this issue of deficit deficit <laughs> deficit uh, reduction as like a, a politically viable thing to actually pursue it's, it's so, always been a that's been a political yeah. talking point for decades I know though. but nobody's ever no, done actually, anything about it though I mean because no. it's been too politically painful to actually do it I mean yeah. I, well, it's been political plain. Now is like the worst possible time to do that, too. That's the thing that's so annoying about all this. 
Like, everyone knows, like, when the economy is bad, government has to spend more to help out. When the economy is good, government can cut back because the economy is doing well. What we had is 10 years of good during which we were cut, 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 you know, during which we were spending like crazy uh, under Bush. And then now the economy's bad and we don't have the resources to do the spending we need to do. And all the politicians are too wimpy to get out there and say, this is what we have to do. They want to just do whatever's popular. So you get a bunch yeah. of Tea Party people making a bunch of noise about cutting taxes and being anti-government. And, well, that's what they do. Sorry, rant. Well, but I think even if you don't believe in what know. the Tea Party is saying, it, it does create a context in where people actually do make cuts. I mean, these would, I mean, you're hearing about dr- dramatic cuts like, Governor uh, Brown is doing an interesting thing here uh, next week. He's he's asking the voters to decide if we want massive cuts or we want higher taxes next year. Um, and so he put it on the ballot. And I think it's interesting because um, if if we actually vote for cuts, the unions have no will have no grounds to really protest if he fires you know ten percent of teachers or something like that. And if voters vote for taxes, then there's no real reason to complain as well. But he's he's putting the the kind of these are two bad choices. It's like treating us like kids, you know. Like you got to go to bed. Do you want me to read a bedtime story or do you want not to read a bedtime story? You know, like. But it's putting the kind of responsibility on people, and it's like a responsibility that has never happened here before. And I think I'm trying to think like why is he doing this? Um, I mean, it's very smart. Whereas I think Walker made a politically political mistake because he thinks probably that i just have to ride this out and i'll be really popular in the end but i think this is untainable you can't try to destroy unions the the question with uh you know the case you know jerry brown is that what happens after the vote is really the whether or not it'll end up being a good idea because if the public votes for more taxes and he raises taxes but then loses in the next election because he raised taxes which is totally possible i know i know the people voted for it but (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or if he drastically cuts spending and a bunch of public sector employees lose their jobs, well, then he might, you know, it's all about whether or not they're going to enforce it. You know, people have such short attention spans. They vote for things and then, you know. Yeah. I mean, because they then, also voted this guy in, this Walker guy. I'm sure he yeah. ran on a campaign of not attacking unions, but probably something close to yeah. cutting yeah. government or something. Well, and that's the thing, too. I mean, a lot of like, for example, the a big one that- and I think with this Walker thing, that to me is most fascinating, is, is the police and firefighter unions endorsed Walker um, during his run, but have since very publicly rescinded their endorsements, oh, really? um, saying essentially like, yeah, saying we didn't sign on for this, you know, like this was not something you said you were going to do. I mean, even the bigger one, which I don't know how closely you've been following it, but Walker actually ordered the police to clear the Capitol today. Um and instead of doing that, the Policemen's Association announced they're not only not clearing the Capitol, they're going to join the people and sleep there, too. Um, and <laughs> so, like, the head of the police union gave this big rousing speech. Because, not too surprisingly, the police and firefighter unions, uh, which were two of, I forget what the third one was. There's one other, like, um, like, prison guards union or something that supported him. But for some reason they were left out of the groups that lose their collective bargaining rights. And I'm sure it's just coincidence that they were the groups that also supported him. Um, But again, it's kind of like, I've heard this argument a lot that like, well, people elected Walker and now Walker is doing this. So clearly this is what people wanted. 
Um, but I think that's like a really good, powerful example of like, well, not really. And especially in a two party system, um, you know, you tend to rarely agree with everything the person you're voting for says. Um, you just vote for whoever's closest to what you want. Um, and I think it's kind of coming out that a lot of people didn't really want this, even people who voted for him. Yeah. And let's face but, it, the people you know, of that Wisconsin- might just be because I'm reading it in the way I want to read it. Yeah. And in this past election, the people of Wisconsin voted Russ Feingold out in favor of that crazy guy. So they clearly weren't thinking right as a whole, the whole state, in my opinion. So I don't know. Can we just collectively irrational? (laughs) Well, I would that's where I would say, like, um, you know, bracketing this whole uh, prank call situation in which he violated some laws. I I don't think he's like because I've read these things on Facebook about impeaching him. And I and that's where I'm like, well, <laughs> I, I mean, I agree. Maybe people didn't know what they were voting for, but at the same time, if you believe in the kind of representative democracy that runs in this country, you have to just kind of say, well, that's who we voted for. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's what the public spoke, and that's what they decided, and we have to just kind of suck it up. I mean, that's these... the guy in California. <laughs> hey, man, Governor <laughs> Brown won. You wouldn't have had Schwarzenegger without a recall vote. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> And we voted for him, man. I mean, it was ridiculous. But if people want a movie star to run the state, then I guess that's what we're doing. So, hey, should we, uh, should we, should we change the topic? Yeah. Because it's, yeah. it's already been a little while. So, you know, what I realized is that if we edit this where we start with the Wisconsin discussion, Everyone will just be wondering why Jesse sounds like he's in an underground bunker halfway around the world. Yeah, I was going to say we haven't really mentioned that. Are you in an underground bunker halfway around the world? I'm actually in a fifth floor bunker. Oh. Fifth floor bunker halfway around the world. Am I really not coming through that well? It, it, actually, you're coming through well. There's a little bit of a, of a lag, some latency issue. But it's not bad. Nothing like last time. And it sounds kind of like you're in a big hall. <laughs> oh, well, that's just because, like... Uh, my place is very sparsely decorated because I'm not buying a lot of furniture. I, you know, I really should have done this in the other room where I have more furniture so it's not so echoey. Because I'm, so I'm actually just sitting in what is really just a bare room with a desk. I'm picturing you in a completely empty room with just the computer in front of you. Completely absorbed in our conversation. But anyway, you're in Iraq. It, it actually literally is that, except I also have a desk and a chair. <laughs> so, so where in Iraq are you? Uh, first of all, John, it's Iraq. Let's, uh, uh, let's, let's be culturally sensitive here. Um, I'm in, uh, to answer that question now, for, uh, for long time listeners, they'll remember this past summer, um, I'm here in, in Suleimania, uh, which is sort of the cultural and educational center of the semi-autonomous Kurdish region in the north of Iraq. Um, you may have heard about it if you follow international news, because it's been kind of one of the one of the big seats of the uh, Iraqi Day of Rage recently, uh, um, patterned on the Egypt model. Um, there's been pretty major demonstrations here every day, so it's kind of funny. I oh, I've been joking with friends back home online that uh, you know all this stuff's going on here, but it, I could have just been back home going over to Wisconsin for it. Um, but yeah, it's been kind of mixed. There was, a the demonstrations have been largely peaceful, but last week there was a 14 year old boy who was shot to death. 
um, in the middle of one of them. So that's kind of ratcheted things up. Um, people are not super happy about that. Ironically, supposedly he wasn't even part of the demonstration. He was trying to go to the Asia cell store to get his cell phone fixed um, when he was shot several times. So that's kind of inflamed passions a little bit. Oh, sad. Very sad. But uh, it's it's hard. Um, I'm not super certain. Apparently, a couple people died in the demonstration today, too. Uh, it, it's hard for me to know because the local, uh, like the local media, which most of which is in Kurdish, which I, of which I know about two dozen words, so I can't really follow. Um, but even even the local media that I can access that's in English is is heavily sort of scrubbed um, and or doesn't really report on negative stuff. And then there's basically no international media here. Um, I do have one friend actually from Duluth who's part of a Christian peacemaker team in this town who's been going to the demos. So I've been talking to her a lot about them. But uh, otherwise, I just kind of all get hearsay. So it's kind of an interesting time to be here. Yeah, you should just switch your dissertation the, uh, topic the latest... and just study, uh, you know, the wave of protests in the Middle East. It actually has made studying uh, policing slightly difficult because uh, it turns out in the middle of daily mass demonstrations that are shutting down the city, the police don't have a lot of time to just sit down and chat with me. Um, so it has kind of put my work on hold a little bit. Uh, but nonetheless, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. So, um, you know, everything's data to the ethnographer. How much longer are you there? Uh, I'm here until June, so uh, you know I'm kind of in a, in a holding pattern. Oh, that's good. You got um, you got time, but I mean, you know I. Yeah. Oh yeah, I uh, honestly coming into it, I would have been surprised had I actually got to start working by now. Anyway, so I'm not super concerned. Um, but it will be interesting to see. I mean, the as you might guess, the sort of recent wave of revolutions or whatever you want to call them in, in the Mideast is quite heavily on people's minds here and quite a bit of subject of discussion. Um, so it, it's really interesting to be sort of in the middle of it, so to speak. That would be a wonderful segue if we wanted to talk, talk about that. Talk about the, the, hey, the various uh, revolutions around uh, going on around there. That would be a good uh, segue. Which I think, which is a fascinating subject. I don't know. I mean, as always on this podcast... There's this anxiety about what to talk about and whether or not we should talk about things we have varying levels of knowledge about. But I don't know. I mean, have you? Have, I mean, I've been following the news and stuff. I think it's been just really surprising. I mean, it's kind of an exciting time in a way. I hate to sound kind of a overly optimistic person, but wow. I mean, who would have thunk it that like you know a month ago you would start seeing these kind of <laughs> revolts across you know northern Africa and the Middle East. Um, and, uh, you know, like, what is the, is it Doug McAdam, the, the kind of social movements guy that came to Minnesota for a while? He used to talk about the wave of protests. I was actually just going to raise that same point. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, you were in that class, Jesse, where he was, like, saying that, yeah. you know, in one way, social movement scholars miss a big part of social movements when they just mo myopically look at one set of issues or one location and they should really look more broadly about several different movements happening around the same period of time and really that movements happen in waves um and so he were talking he was talking about like the different kind of uh revolutions that happened in eastern europe um and the kind of brutal you uh soviet response as kind of speaking to 
you know, a, a sense of things changing and that led to the civil rights movement. I mean, maybe I'm missing one or two connections there. But it, it was just kind of an interesting way of thinking about social movements of how they kind of are co codependent on each other. And this is just a great case of that in a way. I mean, it's I think the, the time period is much shorter. But, uh, I, I, <laughs> the thing, you know, I mean, and I wanted to bring this back to your comment about it, Jesse. Um, and the reaction to this uh, with the people there is in Iraq um, is that the thing that's so striking to me uh, is that it seems like a couple things are driving these uh, sort of parallel revolutions that are going on. And it's one is Al Jazeera seems to be playing a huge role and that people in uh, you know Egypt <laughs> saw what happened in Tunisia and then people in Libya saw what happened in both those places. And having this uh, sort of transnational culture through, you know, Al Jazeera and television is what's sort of inspiring these people in these different countries to do what they're doing, like realizing if it worked there, it could work here. You know, like that's one thing. And then the second thing is that uh, a key factor is young people and the fact that all of these countries, um, I guess the one thing they have in common is that there's a large number of young people in the population and they're not doing very well economically, you know. So it's it's kind of like there's a media story and then there's definitely like a youth and economic story. And what I find so fascinating about both of those things is looking at Iraq and seeing how badly we screwed up, you know, the U.S. screwed up their chance, their, their you know, to ostensibly bring democracy to the Middle East, like, Al Jazeera was an enemy of the Bush administration, and uh, you know they basically have propped up all of these old oligarchs in the Middle East, you know, to for for the sort of reason of stability and stuff. And it's just fascinating to me, like to not see this as a disapproval <laughs> of U.S. foreign policy that was claiming to bring democracy to the Middle East for so long. Um, anyway, did Jesse just cut out? I don't know. Yeah, he did. Oh, all right. Oh, darn. Well, he'll come back. Yeah, he will. Hello. Hey. Hey. Hey, sorry. So um, I was just sort of talking about how uh, I wanted to get your take on what people in Iraq are saying um, because it seems to me like so much of the success of these movements disproves everything that the U.S. government was thinking when trying to you know, supposedly bring democracy to Iraq, right? It relies on you know, Al Jazeera was a big boon to the democracy movement and not an enemy like it was treated by the Bush administration. And young people were the ones who were doing a lot of the organizing and mobilizing around this. And, you know, as opposed to sort of what, what we've always done, which is sort of propping up old oligarchs, you know. That was just... Yeah, like, well, I mean, a couple of things... Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Kind of no, like, there's uh, latency. Okay, just, I'll you, just get you a couple seconds. Yeah, there's a delay. Go. You reminded me of a couple things while while you were saying that there. Um, I mean, one of the which is that the youth is is a big thing. Um, I'm not super familiar on the demographics of Iraq as a whole, um, but I know at least here in the KRG. Um, sorry, which stands for Kurdistan Regional Government, um, which is sort of the official name of, of this part of the country. Um, but in the KRG, over half of the population is under 20. Um, so it definitely is like a very, you know, youth population kind of thing. Um, but in general, there really is like a, a big 
uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Consciousness of the of the other protests. Um, one of the one of the big things is like so you know in Egypt it was Tahrir Square where everything Tahrir meaning Liberation Square, um, and so the the downtown like city square where all of the demonstrations start here. Um, the demonstrators have renamed it Tartar Square and have like covered up all the old signs of the name with like handmade signs and say Tartar Square. And it's like very consciously modeled after these other processes going on. Um, and obviously there's sort of, you know, unique complaints to this country, but otherwise it's, it's sort of the exact same thing. And people, um, you know, and just like you're seeing in Wisconsin, I mean, people are drawing the comparisons to Mubarak. Um, I mean, there's all sorts of Mubarak jokes, you know, going around and those kind of things. Um, and it is like, you know, like both of you are saying, like John said, with the paying attention to other people, and as Arturo brought up, Doug McAdams' point on the wave of revolutions. I mean, they, clearly there is a connection there, and it clearly is that same kind of idea, right? That, yeah, it was so successful elsewhere, um, and, and facing with similar kind of problems that, you know, we can do this too. Um, we should do this too, and, and now is the time. Um, I feel like there's one more point that I, I wanted to address, but now it's failing me. I think this whole issue, though, bringing up like you know the the need to distinguish. Remember in like those methods courses, we were talking about necessary and sufficient causes for something, and you know to draw a causal link between you know A to B, you know something needs to be both sufficient and and necessary for something else to happen and, and i've been thinking about like hearing how people say different things like wow it's amazing how a facebook page really created the revolution and uh you know and i think jesse kind of brings up this point that well you know demographically you have you know a huge young population that it's unemployed you have you know wheat prices increasing i mean there's an economic factor to this as well um and just you know just general frustration and then you have maybe new telecommunication abilities to connect people, but which one of these things really pushed things over? And is it a combination of these things? Is it that Facebook was just happening at the right time? Would would Al Jazeera, did Al Jazeera really play a more crucial role or was it Facebook? Um, and so I think it's kind of interesting because you hear very different spins to it. You know, I, you even hear Fox News saying, well, you know, it was really Condoleezza Rice visiting Egypt in... Uh, <laughs> 1998 uh, and it was the bush doctrine to it was reagan it yeah. was reagan you you hear reagan all sorts of things like that um and you know there's little grains of truth here and there but um you know i i think the the more interesting thing would be like what are the structural reasons for these things to happen and i don't know like is it really just the kind of instability of the world economy and the inability of essentially tyrants unable to um, provide services and opportunities for their people? Is that really what's driving forward? Or is it really just this, you know, acknowledgement that people want democracy? I mean, you know, there was a time, there used to be these surveys in Latin America about, uh, in the 80s, of whether or not people wanted democracy or stability. And most people said they would rather have stability over democracy, and hence kind of why there was a benevolent attitude towards dictators. <laughs> and you know, we're living in a time where maybe dictators can't um, provide stability nor opportunity, which could be, you know, the unromantic reason why these things are happening. Or is it really more of a 
you know, sense of people want democracy and, you know, want to move forward. And we don't really know because, you know, all of these things have yet to be uh, determined as these kind of fledgling nation states form and decide what they want to do. Yeah, I mean, I can't speak to really any of the other cases because I don't know any more than what I've read on the news. But I think part of it here, I mean, two things. One on the technology thing is like, you know, it's definitely not a movement created by Facebook or cell phones or things like that, but it's definitely been a movement that's taken advantage of it, right? Like, so the Day of Rage on Friday, um, which was modeled after so many others, the government really tried to not so much shut it down, but discourage it, you know, and there are a lot of roads blocked and barricaded and things like that. But so a lot of it was organized by cell phone. Like as people were leaving the mosque on Friday prayers, you know, everybody was like texting each other and was like, okay, these streets are open. These streets aren't open. Go this way, go that way. And that kind of thing. And, and it's in terms of this kind of like, you know, is it a, lust for democracy or people coming to openness or something. I think part of it is that like the complaints that are coming to light people have had for a long time, but I think it's just sort of a question of opportunity and that sort of like seeing this wave of demonstrations has made it seem plausible that you could actually get these things addressed. Um, and I think that's kind of what's driving it. And sure enough, I mean, after the first week, the government announced certain concessions um, that are really more of a token gesture. But there's been almost daily meetings of all the sort of major political parties trying to deal with this. And so I, I think it was kind of an opportunity structure and that it wasn't that these are new ideas or anything, but just that it now seems plausible that you can do something about them. It's interesting, too, because, you know, it's really about adding this element of instability to a situation. And and you're saying, Jesse, like seeing opportunities. So like in a situation of Iraq, maybe it's not to topple the government, but to really get concessions of the government, maybe deal with corruption. And similarly, maybe in Egypt, you know, one sense it was toppling one person of this uh, regime, but in essence, the military is still in control. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens there. But the same instability added in a different situation like Libya, um, I mean, I'm kind of worried about that situation because it could be kind of catastrophic uh, because there, yeah. is, there is no centralized institution. There are, isn't really a centralized army. And there's also like really three different types of – there are really three countries that were formed into Libya. So there's also kind of um, different ethnic uh, loyalties um, which could, you know, result in a civil war. And so, but, so it's, it's just kind of this weird, uh, or interesting paradox of, of, um, revolutions in a way, you know, like it, it, they, they break from the old and create this moment of doing something different, but this also can be a scary time given the situation. Yeah. We're sort of into like classical political theory here. Yeah. <laughs> or you, you know the sort of reaction to the revolutions that our country was founded in. Like, this is dangerous. This is scary. There's a value to preserving the institutions that are that are around and modifying them and changing them and making them better, sure. But you can't just throw everything away. And that's sort of the classic, you know, Burkean conservative argument, actually. Yeah. Yeah, last night I was watching this uh, documentary on HBO um, because we're getting HBO for free for this month because of New Cable. 
Um, uh, <laughs> so I'm like watching HBO documentaries all the time, but it was uh, of don't JFK, waste it, don't waste it. <laughs> yeah, of the JFK. Um, I guess there was like a documentary that was being made on JFK before he died, and so they recovered all this old footage, and it just follows him through the campaign in his first year, first two years in office. And uh, it's interesting because you know when you think of JFK, you just think about the assassination, and and but you know he was kind of. Um, trying to move the country a little bit left in a time where there's this scare of Soviet repression or um, global domination. And he was running against Nixon. And, it, and it's like Nixon, whole whole point was, you know, U.S. is the greatest country in the world and we are stable and we are strong. And, um, and Kennedy was kind of saying very similar things in some ways, but he was also saying how we need to change and it seems like Nixon was trying to exploit this fear towards change. And I think he was more successful when he ran again in the 70s and ultimately won. Um, but it's just this, like, this natural human anxiety about change, you know, that there's a certain scary element of it. And he was just totally playing this up in his speeches. And, and um, Kennedy really had to kind of frame change as a way of making things better. And it, it's... You know, and that's one of the interesting things about social movements. And, like, you actually don't actually know what's going to happen. Um, and you have to be willing to accept certain risks uh, for things to get better or they'll always be stagnant. I don't know. Maybe I'm becoming too philosophical on this uh, improv. <laughs> sorry. No, I think there's some interesting parallels between sort of that era and now and that there's kind of widespread agreement that our future is kind of on somewhat rocky footing and like uh, you know we're at sort of a turning point where things need to change but we've got all this legacy stuff that is how things work and there's sort of two approaches to that you know there's sort of the well there's like revolution let's just change everything overnight but then there's like what the democrats and republicans tend to do which is uh, or uh, you know the two major parties would tend to do any any two major parties would probably do this one is dig your heels in and say you know not only are all these things not happening? We're still the greatest. We're still the best. Forget all these problems. What we need to do is what we've always done, you know. And people like to hear that. It restores their confidence, and they think that's the kind of person we need leading us now. And then the other side is like, you know, well, what we need to do is make these moderate changes. It'll start to steer us and direct us towards a better, you know, and like you know the sort of rhetoric you hear from Democrats right now, at least. And you know, it's uh, it's like fascinating like that happens throughout history it's not like just yeah. a just what's going on you know now in 2011 with our politics now it's like something about a stable uh, liberal democracy with two parties will always produce that dynamic <laughs> whenever you're in sort of periods of transition no that's very true i mean listening to the the campaign speeches i was like wait a second i've heard this before <laughs> like we've been talking about change for 40 years oh my god and like oh this is probably what they always say <laughs> you know and i'm sure if i looked up speak campaign speeches of the 70s or 80s or the 50s or 30s i'm sure it would have been very similar life is so depressing in a mature liberal democracy you know <laughs> it's just so boring it's always the so same boring and stayed so but should the u.s um intervene in libya what do you guys think like Gaddafi, um you know if he has a stronghold of like a little part of the city and he starts gassing his people should the u.s get involved 
I think I think there's a distinction between well, I, I don't know. This is this is something again I only know so much about, but I think it's really interesting how um people are like what what Obama's done has been classic Obama, like very usually slow to respond and then very moderate, but not wrong, just a little late and a little too little, you know. And um and I think but but at the same time, you know, Libya or uh, you know, Tunisia that worked out. Egypt, that kind of has been working out so far. Uh, Libya, will that work out? I think there's a there's a turning point where it turns from a revolution that could happen peacefully to um, like a humanitarian intervention. You know, I think I mean I think that's that's a different state that might that if that happens in Libya that changes things because I think you know a lot of people have been impatient with Obama like come on intervene intervene and I think that's maybe part of the a bunch of you know liberals in the U.S who are bored with our uh, horribly <laughs> depressing political life, they want a piece of some action, and they see a way to get in, you know. Yeah. And maybe maybe that's part of it. But, like, it's like, look, you can't, have it both, you can't have it both ways. You know, you can't have, um, you know, it, it, you know, you can't say people of the world should make their own democracy and, 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 you know, form their own governments and decide their own fate and also have a crazy interventionalist, you know, U.S. foreign policy. You know, just because you agree with it in some cases and not in others, you kind of have to have some sort of, you know, and I think it's been smart. Like if Obama's too heavy handed, then that maybe is something that the, you know, in, in that part of the world, the the established governments can use to turn the people back in their favor or something. I don't know. It's an interesting question. But I think if it moves to like Gaddafi slaughtering people in the streets and crazy, you know, then I think. Well, like, that's that, the that thing, changes. though. I, I think like Mubarak and all those other guys who have been toppled, they they didn't use those methods because at some point they would have known, okay, that would have been politically suicide, not in their own countries, but outside. I mean, they would have just lost all credibility as legitimate leaders in a way. Um, and for some reason in their calculations, they thought this wasn't worth it to just, you know, set up an army outside of my palace and prevent. But Qaddafi yeah. is kind of doing that. Yeah. You know, he's, he's kind of he's saying, a little crazier, yeah. right? a little yeah. more unpredictable. <laughs> And, you know, does that, like, legitimate, like, if he's, I mean, because he has started killing thousands of people, and so yeah. if he starts, like, gassing people, would that be a point in which somebody has to intervene and take him out? I mean, I know that sounds kind of very neocon um, rhetoric of who do we need to take out, but at no, what but that's point... what I said. There's, there's a difference between a foreign government coming in and inciting revolution and mm -hmm. a foreign government coming in and doing humanitarian intervention in a, in a government that's slaughtering its own people, right? They're totally different things i think yeah what do you think jesse i'm kind of curious to see hear what you would you would think yeah no i've been trying to prepare my usually measured response <laughs> um but yeah i mean it's hard well i was going to say sort of the same thing that you do is it is so easy to take the wait and see approach with like egypt and those other places because there would be you know sort of little skirmishes but there was it, it really never even looked like it was going to turn into this sort of like whole scale bloodbath or even like an armed revolution. So it's really easy to just sit by and say like, well, you know, you should hear these people out or let them do it. But like, I mean, I've read reports with Gaddafi from everywhere from 300 people dead to several thousand dead. Um, and so I don't know. Yeah, it's really, and, and as John was saying, I mean, there is legitimately, it's very, it's very different than, say, coming into Iraq and saying, you are going to be freed from this leader whether you like it or not. 
um, and coming in and saying like you you're attempting to free yourself from this leader and he's killing all of you. Um, what I have heard is that it's been proposed to freeze all of Gaddafi and his family's assets and to cut off all like arms shipments to the country. And I think those are very, very reasonable steps to take. Um, but yeah, the, it's, it's really hard. I mean, that's like the sort of, uh, it's a, it's a hard spot to say when, you know, I'm obviously as people have picked up by now, not someone who really is ever going to call for an armed intervention. Um, but yeah, I mean, at a certain point, you know, if it keeps going the way it's going, some sort of shoe is going to have to fall. But um, I mean, really at this point, it's starting to seem more and more like it's not so much a civil war, but it's Gaddafi and the few people left he can convince to support him, like hold up fighting off the world. So I think maybe at this point it's less of a need for like an inter- armed intervention than it is for like a criminal intervention to like arrest him. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I mean, I think, you know, when he made those statements that he was going to kill everybody that was ever against him, it pretty much like set up the situation where there was in- impossible to have any kind of negotiation, <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's kind of crazy, though. Yeah, I, my, my, not to like inject some humor into this, but like I, I my favorite uh, little meme, one of my favorite memes on Twitter I saw a couple days ago was to have a deposed dictator survivor, where you've got, uh, and just imagine this, it's just hilarious, you know, you've got, you know, uh, you know, Mubarak and and Gaddafi, and you know, they're all like on an island, and they have to like, uh, and then I mean, just imagine like the rigged elections to determine who was gonna lo- who was gonna lead them, you know, it'd be awesome. That's what we should do with them. Forget, forget an international, <laughs> yeah. forget criminal courts and all these complicated international issues. Just, just make it reality TV. Put them all on an island. You know. I, no, you got the point. Maybe we can go to Gaddafi. Like, hey man, we got you a nice resort in this <laughs> island. We yeah. set you up. It's beautiful. You know, all the fruit you want, and it's a survival. We're just gonna film you the entire time. <laughs> yeah. He would probably go no, for I, it. I, he strikes me as the kind yeah. of guy that would be like, you know, that's not bad. <laughs> Well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, in a in a slightly more serious but still kind of facetious way, the problem is with Kaffee is that he seems to be in that sort of Kim Jong-il rank of, like, just kind of nuts, you know? Like, because Mubarak was clearly a dictator, but he was, like, you know, a, a, a seemingly rational dude, right? Like, a guy who had views that, like, I strongly disagree with, but the kind of guy who could be reasoned with and clearly when he saw that like you know the whole country had turned against him he gave it up but like Gaddafi seems like he's one of those dudes who like messianic type dictators who like is so thoroughly convinced that it's his country to rule that even if it was literally only him alone hold up in the palace fighting off the entire country he would do that to the end you know yeah did you guys? Uh, did you guys? Speaking of Gaddafi, as as sociologist here, I can't help but mention. Did you guys read the or hear anything about a couple of years back? I guess Anthony Giddens, um, you know, working. You know, you know, he worked like with closely with the Blair government in 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 England. I can't remember like what his position was, but he was you know he was a big advisor to Tony Blair and uh, like headed the London School of Economics and all this stuff and like uh, apparently like flew Gaddafi in for these big talks and he was like this passionate you know like big defender said all these nice things about how confident he was and how how great 
uh, Gaddafi was for Libya and how he was going to move them towards democracy. And there's all these really embarrassing things of Anthony Giddens saying, you know, sort of as a sociologist, as a, you know, a big, big wig policy advisor, you know, um, and anyway, like that's that's another thing about Gaddafi is that he kind of has this weird history where at least um, I mean, I don't know uh, where certain pockets of the left have been relatively fond of him, I think. <laughs> You know, I hadn't like, really heard that. That's really interesting. Well, no, I, yeah, I hadn't heard that either, though. I just Googled it and am now seeing a lot of crazy stuff about it. Um, wow. The problem with Googling Gaddafi is how to spell it. <laughs> I was actually doing the Giddens part. But I will say, locally, um, there's actually a Gaddafi street in downtown Sui um, because he's historically been very supportive of the Kurds' cause. Um, but in light of what's going on, they have taken down all the street signs and renamed the streets. Um, so, I mean, that's the problem with leftist dictators, you know, they can so easily co-opt the language of liberation and progressive politics, but also do kind of horrible things at the same time. I mean, power corrupts. I mean, that's the, probably the generic, uh, conclusion of, of most of these stories you know like he wrote that green book which i have no idea what it's, what it's about but i'm sure it has some kind of liberation yeah, theology. It's, green. it's green it's green <laughs> so yeah i mean it's got to be good you know and, it's not red it's not black it's green yeah it's green book. it's friendly <laughs> it's probably environmentally friendly it's probably pinned on recycled paper <laughs> <laughs> yeah i bet he has a prius <laughs> Yeah, get on your Prius and leave the country, you bastard. That's funny. Sorry, I'm now stuck in uh, pages I've Googled about Anthony Giddens and, and Gaddafi. I know. I, I never have heard to, this before at all. I'm going to have to read this. Are you learning anything? I, I don't know much. I just, you know, I, I heard some heard some talk. Yeah, I mean, other chat. than the fact that he's been... Yeah, it's that's crazy. I, uh, it definitely will. I used a... I in past classes I've used a book written by Anthony Giddens, and uh, I'm not certain that I can do that anymore. <laughs> I love Anthony Giddens actually. He's one of my favorite theorists. I have like him on my my wall, big poster of him. And, uh, Next to your poster of Colonel Gaddafi. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna have to tear that down. Yes, here's a very, for example, here's a very unfortunately phrased now article I just come across in the New Statesman where Anthony Giddens says. Muammar Gaddafi has rejected terrorism and brought Libya back into the international fold, and like that, it just sort of fawning about him, which is unfortunate. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. He's also uh, to put one of my other favorite memes. Uh, speaking of um, mem tyrant related memes, is there's been a good series of uh pictures comparing Gaddafi either to early Michael Jackson or Carlos Santana oh, uh, yeah. in terms of dress and appearance um <laughs> which is is both entertaining and accurate I I saw someone uh someone say uh I can't remember who like uh it might be the only one that looks at Gaddafi and thinks what has Gene Simmons done now <laughs> that's true actually that is a very I would give you that one yeah <laughs> that's quite good actually that's a great line to end it on that uh that john looks at him and says what is gene simmons done now ah uh, see we're gonna do that i gotta look up who said it though 
Oh, you're stealing that from someone? Yeah, that wasn't me. I can't take credit. Uh, uh, I thought you made that up. Maybe John Stewart. I know John Stewart was doing something about Gaddafi the other day. No, no, it was it was it was no it was uh. Oh, hold on. Oh, okay, yeah, it was Alan Schuess. It was a sociologist. I definitely can't steal it. It was Alan Schuessman. So, well, you can give credit in something. I just did. I just said it. I said it was oh, Alan, Alan Schuessman.